everyone, and welcome to Wholesale Change, the webcast and podcast from Distribution Strategy Group, where we provide thought leadership for wholesale change agents like you. Because if you're on this call, you probably are a wholesale change agent. Jonathan, I need you to share your screen, my friend. I want to bring in my business partner, the emperor, emperor of Excel, the doctor of distribution, Jonathan Bine. How are you today, Jonathan? I am well, Ian. How are you in this um, in this frigid Colorado climate? Unbelievable. It's you know third or first week of September, and we got a bunch of snow and ice. It's incredible. Um, but at least it'll help combat some of those forest fires, huh? Absolutely. Good. Good. And we have a special guest today. I'm delighted to welcome. Mr. Randy McLean, he's the president of Waypoint Analytics, which adds advanced cost and profit uh, analytics to your ERP. Uh, and he's going to go into that. I do want to make clear, this is not a sponsored broadcast. Randy's not paying us to be on here. We have invited Randy because he think, we think that he's got important information that distributors need to hear. So this is pure uh, journalistic integrity here. We're not, um, we're not uh, behind the scenes exchanging any money. Right, Randy? Good morning. I'm delighted to be with you again and uh, to continue the conversations that we have regularly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's great. So I'm going to hand this over to Jonathan. Jonathan, you need to share your screen, my friend. Okay. So we've got a really, really good discussion here about getting over the small order hurdle. And um, Randy has been working in profitability and cost of sort of analytics for about a dozen years now. Randy, you've probably looked at tens of billions of dollars of transactions. Is that a fair statement? Hundreds of billions, actually. Hundreds of billions. I have the wrong order of magnitude. Excuse me. Okay, so you've seen a little data in your time related to profitability, right? We've seen a bit. We've also had the great privilege of working with some of the brightest and, and uh, smartest people in wholesale distribution and uh, gathered a wealth of ideas and uh, some really good information on what really works, uh, some of the things that doesn't work, uh, some of the things that don't work so well. Um, and uh, so uh, we've been uh, gathering a repository of best practices across the last uh, 10 or 12 years. That's amazing and, and is, is worth its weight in gold. Um, let's, let's sort of step into that. So actually one of the themes of this show is being a wholesale change agent. And Randy, I know you're very attuned to some of the issues in change management as it pertains to profitability and cost to serve management initiatives. Can you talk to us about that in, in terms of how you think about change action, the change action chain? That's actually a really good point. And uh, to put this in context, uh, we've been working um, uh, during the event of the pandemic and uh, we're working with a lot of our clients that are um, uh, operating on shifting ground where the uh, market has changed around them. Uh, uh, the old strategies and tactics aren't working so well anymore. And we've uh, uh, found some uh, things that are really, really effective in, in today's market uh, and in the environment we have here and are going to have even greater application as we come out the other side. Uh, however, uh, like always, if you want to get a different result, you can't keep doing the same things. And that means executives run into the, uh, uh, the permanent challenge of getting change made uh, within their organizations and within their channels. And uh, we've um, uh, had discussions with people that have uh, uh, really got mastery over this kind of issue. And one of the op uh, things that came up uh, was the concept of a change action chain. 
it really has to do with um, you know how many steps there are to get the uh, to get something done and the attenuation that happens to each of those steps and I can remember when I cut my teeth I was a young buck I had a high-profile job in a big company we had 44,000 employees uh, but I got the opportunity to be in the uh, company boardroom at least twice a month uh, briefing the owners and executives on this high-profile project that they brought me in for and uh, I got a real insight into this where uh, I'd be sitting with the VP that was responsible for all of the organization operations and sales. And he'd say, you know, we're going to do this and it's going to be working by such and such. And then I'd get in my car and drive back to the suburbs and into my, um, my office in the tiny corner of this giant warehouse built uh, distribution center that they had. And I'd be talking to some of the people out in the warehouse and I'd say, hey, this thing's coming. And I'd say, we're not doing that. And that didn't matter how much the VP wanted to get it done. The people down that were actually going to do the work uh, were not so motivated. And so the effectiveness of these programs uh, was not that great. And I think we've all felt that. And so uh, one of the things that, uh, that we realize is that if you want fast, rapid, sustainable change, uh, uh, programs that don't requ require an awful lot of, uh, of people to be involved in it, um, basically happen faster and you get a, a higher, uh, quicker result. It's basically, you know, situation in most cases you want to do something since most change happens at the customer contact surface of the business, uh, you're left as an executive with a challenge of uh, educating and motivating the, the managers who have to educate and motivate the salespeople, who have to educate and motivate the customers, who may in turn have to educate and motivate their operational people in order to get something done. and uh, you got 100% of your programming in your mind when you start, and you got about 3% of it happening uh, at the end because there's too many steps in the chain. So uh, one of the things that we're really excited about the uh, minimum order quantity um, uh, program that we've been working on is it's something that you can do yourself, and there aren't a lot of steps in the chain, so it could be very effective. Interesting. So I think attenuation, you use this word attenuation, is technically a telecommunications term, or related to signal, is that right? Yeah, I'm, um, I started my career as a communications engineer and, uh, you know, working in radio and things like that. And, uh, and that's definitely a term from my past. So what you're saying basically is that this is like the game of telephone. If you've got five or six steps, um, there's loss in each step um, getting from the source to the customer, but this minimum order quantity idea that you have, this, this program, is something that doesn't have that effect. Is that a fair description? That's exactly right. And in fact, for all programs where you want to get something done that's different, um, uh, change has to be made. And the uh, more directly you are in control of the change and the fewer people that have a vote on whether the change happens or not, um, the faster and more effective the program is going to be. So uh, you get a hot, much higher degree of success and, and a, a much higher return on your efforts if you can develop something with a short action chain. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the small order problem. I, I know many distributors have experienced this. Um, if they've looked at their data, they notice there's a, a large percentage of their orders that are small. Um, talk to us about the dynamics of the small order problem. How is it that people can be profitable even with small orders? Are we trying to get to zero small orders? Um, Take, a, take us through your thinking on the small order problem, if you would. 
Well, um, uh, you and I have discussed the small order problem for a long time. Uh, every distributor has it. Uh, the underlying dynamic is there are certain orders where the operating cash that's generated by the order, the gross profit in the order, is just not so doesn't uh, isn't big enough to cover the costs of fulfilling the order. And uh, the larger the proportion of those orders that you have in your business, the more difficult it is to be profitable and actually the lower profit rate that you drive as a company. And this has been known for a long time. Bruce Merrifield did a case study on it when he was at Harvard 40 something years ago. Um, and it was widely publicized. People have been talking about it for years. Um, the real issue is how do you actually change that? And uh, that's been the grand challenge is getting, the, um, is getting in control of the small order problem. And uh, most of the solutions have that long tail uh, action chain. And so the results that you get on, the, on those things are not that great. Um, and then the other issue is that the, uh, the problem itself uh, can uh, uh, deliver a significant drag on the profits, of course, on the small orders. Uh, but because uh, you can have a lot of them with counter sales, um, big box um, uh, clients that have, you know, many, many locations, some of them very small, don't need a lot of inventory, um, uh, particular kinds of business where people are just buying whatever, whatever they need for the job, uh, those things scale up really quickly. And there are a significant challenge to the cash, uh, cash flow production and profitability of many distributors, maybe almost all distributors. So let's ask a question this way. If I've got a $100 cost to ship an order, um, what would be considered a small order relative to that $100 cost? Do I need to be at a, do I need to be at $200? Is it a function of gross margin? How do you think about that? Well, in this decade, according to you know, about $100 billion of business that we're overseeing, um, uh, typical uh, per invoice cost uh, in distribution across about 60 channels that we do work in uh, runs between about $75 and $125. Okay. That hasn't changed an awful lot uh, uh, over the last decade. Uh, companies have gained a little bit of efficiency, but costs have gone up. And so it's been pretty static. And so um, there's an awful lot of elements that contribute to that. And the whole idea is basically to uh, change the, uh, deno uh, the numerator on the order by getting the order value up. And the only way you get the order value up is uh, orders are made of lines and you have to have fewer lines that are below uh, the money losing threshold uh, in order to make sure that you are not going to have large portions of money losing orders. Okay, but so, so if we go back to my question, if we, if we say it's $100 for, for an order, that's right in the middle of your 75 to 125, where does the order size need to be in terms of gross profit dollars to, to make it workable? Do I need to have $200 gross profit per order, 125? Well, that's gonna matter a lot based on the cost structure of the company, right? And the, okay. and the, yeah, and, uh, and, and the Ian, you put margin. your hand right on it. Yeah. Um, that's the question we've got frequently because people are trying to put the whole thing in the framework of gross margin because a lot of us have been taught, I certainly was, that gross margin was, was the best lever for us to control what's going on. Uh, but we've discovered over the last decade or more uh, that the real lever is the cost to serve. Uh, that's something that is directly controllable um, and uh, you can have uh, low margin orders that make you a lot of money uh, as long as the cost structure is low enough. And the cost structure is something that you can influence a, a great deal um, where margin is almost impossible to control. And so there's a real danger looking at averages here, right? Because you may have a, 
a large order that ships from the manufacturer direct to the customer. It's a very low gross margin, so it looks unattractive, but you have no costs in it. And so it's actually very profitable. Yeah, um, that's, well, that's well put. And, uh, you know, we do um, uh, profit value segmentation and we provide those kinds of things in the uh, analytics that our clients get. And um, really what it does is uh, breaks up our group's customers according to their efficiency um, and, and their profit production. And that's really, really beneficial because you'll have a company average of say, um, uh, let's say it's 15% of uh, revenue is what it costs you to fulfill orders. Mm -hmm. But you'll have customers out there that are doing it at 2% and 3%. And any margin above that is profitable on, the, on those particular accounts. And even within uh, certain customers, you'll have locations that are more or less um, efficient. And as long as you're matching your margins to the efficiency of the, of the customer, uh, you can virtually make money on everything you do, which is a far cry, cry from the industry average where uh, distributors typically uh, lose money on more than 60% of all the invoices they write. Um, the companies that are basically deep into analytics and have taken action on this um, are showing profit rates are un unbelievable. We have clients that are taking 20, 24, 26% of revenue all the way to the bottom line uh, because they've been effect uh, able to affect the mix of uh, profitable to unprofitable sales. And uh, they have a larger proportion of their sales that are making money and a much smaller proportion that are losing money. Hey, Randy, um, generally speaking, when you do things that make orders more profitable for you, does that generally make the customer more efficient as well? Well, that actually, that's one of the best questions of the day. Um, it's always a win-win because of the law of reciprocal costs. If you're spending a lot servicing a customer, they're spending a lot receiving the product, ordering the right. product, and doing all the rest. And, uh, you know, it costs them twice as much to send you two orders as to send you one. Right. So, and it costs you quite a bit more uh, to uh, ship uh, uh, two half orders rather than a single whole one. And, and that's a big difference from managing margin, right? Because ordinarily, if I'm trying to drive up prices, that's good for me and bad for the customer. And yeah, that, and that's exactly it. Um, if you can work uh, with the, uh, the, the customers that really get it, uh, they'll understand that they're going to make more money on what they're doing um, by working uh, more efficiently with you the same way Walmart works with its suppliers. Um, and if you're able to do that, you're gonna wind up with a win-win relationship that can't be matched by your competitors. So Randy, you mentioned the more than 60% of the orders are unprofitable. So what that means is that for distributors who are profitable, and most are, that the 40% of the orders that are profitable are enough to offset the 60% that are unprofitable. There's a pretty strong correlation between uh, your profit and cash flow generation and the proportion of your business that's unprofitable. Uh, nominal distributors running about 62, a little over 62% of their orders are, are losing money um, or their shipments are losing money. And, um, and they're generating between three and 5% uh, bottom line or NBT in a nominal year. Uh, somebody that reduces that down to 50% um, of their orders being unprofitable, uh, increases their bottom line uh, to something between uh, eight and 12%. And the companies that are down below 40% are the companies that are getting close to 20% uh, uh, bottom line. And so it's not a matter of eliminating all money losing orders, it's just cutting the uh, proportion. If you have a situation where two thirds of your orders are losing money and a third are making money, and you change that into, you know, five out of, um, uh, you know, two out of five are losing money, 
uh, that can make a huge difference to your bottom line. Sounds like every point of unprofitable orders that I get rid of is just goodness. Like, like you said, going from 62% to 50% is going to radically increase my profitability. It translates directly into um, uh, more profits and higher cash flow. And it also makes you more competitive because uh, it opens up the door to use um, uh, increased, make investments in increased customer service. You can make a cu better customer experience um, and you can uh, reinvest that in aggressive pricing without taking it out of your bottom line. Customers must love both of those things, right? Oh, um, it, uh, it, it's a permanent and sustainable advantage that will actually put your comp competition, uh, drive them out of your market or put them out of business. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, it's, I mean, this is, this is a, an important thing in distribution. I, I was listening to the HD supply earnings call this morning and the analyst from Wells Fargo asked about the company's average order size and what the trends were. Um, so, you know, even though that's a very macro question that goes across all customers, it's clearly, uh, you know, something that he's sensitive to and the company had a good answer for it, I thought. Yeah, and people on that track are going to get there. Um, and uh, and an important, the last important point of this is that uh, changing the small order problem um, uh, most of the time means negotiating with the customer. And it's, um, it, it, you have to make a sustained effort to keep that going with new customers, with existing customers, and so on. So it requires a certain amount of resources. That's why the minimum order quantity, or MOQ pro program, is so uh, important and so exciting, is because it's something that doesn't require a, a long-term sustained effort in order to maintain. It's something you can install now. You can do a little bit of maintenance on it from time to time but you get an immediate benefit without having to continually uh, upgrade education and training for your, uh, for your customers and for your salespeople in order to get the benefits. So, so let's shift into a, shift into a discussion of the, the, your, some of your thinking around the minimum order quantities. All right, so um, I guess this is the meat of it, and this is the thing that uh, everybody's so excited about. Um, uh, there are uh, companies that uh, do a lot of business into retail, um, uh, do business into places where uh, inventory is being stocked in some way by the company, by the customer. There's some kind of uh, inventory buffer there, and this is where these programs can be hugely effective. But the whole idea of a minimum order quantity is to look on a skew by skew basis um, at what you're selling and see what exactly the profitability is at every, at every different pick level. And that's, uh, that's a big analysis that we've been working on for our clients. In fact, we've been providing to all of our clients um, uh, starting this summer. And so uh, when, you get into, uh, when you get into a minimum order quantities, you're gonna start sending the uh, minimum order quantity by SKU. Um, that'll turn losses into profits and small orders because uh, too frequently you'll be uh, selling a single item. And this is the AA battery problem. Uh, you can't buy a two pack of AA batteries anymore. You can't buy a single anymore because it costs more uh, to move that product or that small incremental product through the channel uh, than it costs to, uh, uh, than, it, uh, than you can possibly make on it at any level. You can make on it, even the customer can't sell it and make a profit on it. And so, 
um, you know, the, the industry went to four packs and the eight packs. And now uh, the most common uh, increment for AA batteries is a 24 or 32 pack. And that um, not only gives you, uh, that gives really two important benefits. First thing is when somebody orders that quantity, you have a fighting chance to actually make money or at least cover your costs on the sale. Uh, but more importantly, and the thing that's often overlooked, is somebody that's bought 32 uh, AA batteries is not going to come back and buy 30 more two-packs, uh, causing 32 more money-losing uh, orders into the future. And so the uh, fact that the customer has a little bit of inventory buffer, particularly on low-value items, uh, can really, really affect uh, your mix of money-making and money-losing orders. Uh, too often, your order is made up of uh, you know, um, 40, 50, 60, 70% of the lines on the order are money losing lines because all the quantities are too small. And in low value items, they're almost guaranteed to lose money. And if you can boost the quantity even a little bit, uh, that can make a big difference. So Randy, um, when, when you say set the minimum order quantity by SKU, you mean literally every SKU I have? Do you mean the 10% of the SKUs that are 90% of the revenue? What, when you say by SKU, what do you mean? Well, you know, from a technical standpoint, uh, many systems will let you set uh, those quantities at the SKU level. Uh, sometimes, uh, uh, but when we're doing the work for our, uh, for our clients, uh, we're looking at uh, rules that run algorithms that set, th say things like uh, all of the items that we have that sell for less than $5 uh, where we're losing money. Uh, then we'll set a quantity where we're going to get at least, let's say, $8 of, of gross profit on the sale uh, so that we have enough money to cover our costs. Or, um, and in some cases, you can't go that far because the market, of, um, because of the way the market works or, or what you're selling and who you're selling it to. But it's really important from a financial uh, standpoint to realize that a reduction in losses is every bit as important as an increase in profits. So if you have a situation where you're losing $8 every time you sell, or you're losing um, you know, 60% of revenue on each sale when you're selling one of them, and boosting that up to two means you only lose 15%, um, that's actually a gain in your bottom line. Uh, that actually increases the profitability of that sale and of the company overall. And if you scale that across many, many sales, you can get significant impact, um, which without having a huge impact on customer inventory levels or stocking levels or anything like that. And so uh, we have clients that say, well, for this product category, for this line of business, for products below this category, for customer, uh, products that are sold to certain kinds of customers that are most likely going to lose us money, uh, we'll go through and, and just pick the right levels or pick uh, a level that's better than what we're doing right now. Um, and some of this carries back to the vendor level as well. Um, uh, we have clients that have gone back to the uh, the supplier and say, look, uh, we're not buying any more singles from you. We don't want a carton of, of, of 12 of them. We want them bundled up in three packs. And uh, they usually have that because other customers have already requested it. And just switching the inventory into something that has a little bit more quantity on it, getting your eight packs of, of double A's rather than selling, uh, getting a box of, of two dozen and then breaking it down so you can sell singles can be very helpful. Um, and that brings up another point. Um, uh, if you align this with carton quantities, it can be extremely powerful and beneficial in another way. And that is, uh, let's say something comes in in a, 12, in a carton of 12. You can't sell 12s to your customers. They don't want 12s. But what you can do is you can maybe sell 3s or 4s. And if you set your minimum order quantity to a sub-multiple of a carton quantity, 
uh, you're going to produce less dead, dead inventory. Because right now you've got a carton of 12, somebody gets six out of it, somebody else orders five out of it, there's one left in there. The next time somebody wants six or four, um, it, uh, it's too much work for the people in the warehouse. They'll just grab a new carton and open up, take four out of that. Sooner or later, that carton with the one item left in it is, you know, the product is dirty, it's got dog-eared, it's fallen on the floor, and maybe got broken or it's, no. Uh, but for whatever reason, it turns into dead inventory. And so if you're setting your minimum order quantities to sub-multiples of a carton, then you're going to get three orders out of a 12-pack when you're selling four at a time. And they're a lot less likely to develop uh, and create that inventory that's taking up volume in your warehouse and uh, eventually liquidating some of your uh, investment in inventory. So you have to do, you have to do prime factorization of the, of the carton quantity to come up with the minimum order for that particular skew there's the there's the phd that i oh, know man. so well you guys are you guys are both nerds i just want to make that <laughs> make that publicly guilty as charged your honor <laughs> <laughs> yeah i Trying. appreciate the math on it but you're absolutely right that's what you're yeah. trying to do and um uh, and do in doing that you're going to definitely wind up with uh, a reduction in order uh, inventory write-offs into the future so it's a it's a third benefit of the program uh, ultimately, uh, what you're going to have to do to, uh, to work this is you have to worry about how the, how the interface is going to be with the customer. And so you're going to look at the customer perspective, but you're going to set policies and then train people on the, on the policies. So, um, um, and of course, as you asked before, this is always a benefit to the customer. Um, if somebody's coming in and they want a single spray bottle, you say, we only sell three packs. Um, they're probably not, not gonna you know, drop you and go off to Home Depot where they're gonna have to buy a three pack anyway because Home Depot don't, doesn't sell spray bottles on, on their own or Costco. Um, now they've already uh, taken these policies. Um, uh, so uh, you're gonna say, look, we're just tr it costs you more to get a single than the single is worth. Right. So if you get three of them, you're not gonna have to come back two more times. And it's for an extra you know, $2.09 investment um, and most companies, uh, you know, you could decide you're going to reject orders that are below the minimum, or you could just accept them and round them up to the minimum. Uh, you can set your own policy, and then you just have to make sure you train your people. And you'll get blowback from certain people. As, uh, they'll create uh, smoke and heat, and you want your people to have an answer when somebody calls and says, what are you doing? So, well, they don't come in that quantity anymore, but we thought you wanted the product, so we got it to you. If you want to send them both back, we'll take them back. So, Randy, if we look at inventory category A, B, C, and D, how do these policies vary? How do these ideas vary whether, based on the inventory category, if at all? Well, that's, that's actually a good question because there's a lot of people that are um, sort of, you know, square corner box type people like I am. And, you know, and in the back of my mind, I think there's this one formula to solve all the world's problems. Um, when you're working with people, that's rarely the case. And so we highly recommend that people look at these things situationally. And you might um, have minimum order quantities for certain customers, not for others. You may have minimum order quantities in certain product lines um, uh, and not in others. And so you, you can set these kinds of things. And then of course you can make exceptions to them where it makes sense uh, so you're not harming yourself uh, or harming your relationship with the customer. Um, it's not it's, a good idea to make a rule like that's gonna cause more, you problems. It would seem like you would be more strict with these policies with C and D items rather than A and B. Yeah, if it's a $3 item and it's a, a customer that's been losing you money for the last four years, um, I, 
I don't even care if the customer goes to someone else. Uh, as long as I can replace them with another customer, it's going to give me the same cash flow and fewer orders. I'm better off. Well, uh, the, the A, A and B is where all the money's going to be. Um, it is, although uh, one of the things that Jonathan raised some years ago in our discussions is there's a certain class of small um, uh, 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 customers that basically are never going to be large, or certainly they're not large right now. And there's a business model that you can create that can that you can uh, take money out of that market as well. And the uh, policies and the infrastructure you have for large accounts um, probably isn't good to apply uh, to those small customers. You can you know you can make a wholesale low take location. You can have people pick their own inventory um, and do that kind of thing. And where, where that's the case. Uh, you can have a different set of policies and different minimums. Yeah, I mean, arguably, much of construction is about making money with small customers. Absolutely. Right. Uh, yeah, well, I, uh, much of construction is um, mastering the logistics of making sure that they can get the exact quantities to the exact right place um, and, and that they're doing it in, in, in mass. Rather than shipping them, you know, everything they need for a day for a site, uh, you might find, you might be able to load the truck with all the stuff they're going to need that week. And as long as they keep the inventory in the truck and, and don't leave it on a construction site, um, uh, they could be better off. Or in some of our clients, they put uh, containers out on the sites and they stock the containers. Um, and then they provide security for the containers. So they have a way of staging inventory so they're not shipping so, so many small quantities. So there's some pretty creative solutions out there. Um, the thing that I, I thought was uh, very interesting is I provided for people uh, that get the collateral after the uh, podcast, um, just a, a, a chunk of, a, of one of the analytical sheets that our clients are getting and using. And uh, it's a little bit dense, but the main thing is that for each SKU, it shows uh, how, all the different pick quantities for that skew, the number of times that it was picked as a single, the number of times it was picked for uh, two, four, eight, 12, whatever the numbers are across the course of usually a year. Um, how many times was it picked at this quantity level? And what was the profitability when it was picked at that level? And uh, you know, the example at the top of the sheet, you have something that's, uh, uh, it's actually a, uh, a $2.34 item at, at retail. You make 21 cents in gross profit on it. Uh, when you sell a single uh, and you lose 90% of the revenue on it. So if you've got a $10 of revenue, you're going to lose $9 selling it uh, when you sell it quantity one. If you boost that to quantity two, you're only losing uh, $2.60 instead of $9 each time that it's sold. Um, and if you get it up to quantity four, you're only losing 7%. It starts to get into the money when you get to quantity eight, 12, you know, and so on above that. And so you have an ability uh, to look at items, uh, item by item and say, well, wait a minute, you know, does it make sense uh, to lose basically a dollar on a dollar of sales on something? And the answer is, of course not. Um, and so you can look at the number of times that that happens. You can look at something else that sells for $30 and you can find that, you know, quantity one is, is acceptable. Um, uh, you're either losing very little or you're making money when you sell that particular item, the way it tends to be sold. Uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting is that the NBC rate, that's what we call profit here at Waypoint, um, 
the profit rate does not scale with the quantity. Now, most of the, uh, the finance people say, well, wait a minute, why isn't the, are you making more and more profit on this? It's because, uh, and the answer is because in Waypoint, it's all in. We know what the transport costs are, the order entry costs, the overhead costs and whatnot. And the issue is that uh, what the analysis is showing is not only what you made, but what you tend to make when it's ordered at that quantity. So an example, there's a, um, uh, you're making 9% when you sell it in quantity 60, uh, but you sold it one time at quantity 62 and you only made 5.5%. And the reason why that's so much lower is because probably now uh, when somebody ordered 62 of them, they didn't order anything else with them. So there's nothing else to help offset the cost. They needed 62, they ordered 62, that's that. And it was more likely than not um, uh, when they're ordering, you know, an oddball quantity like that, they're just ordering what they need for a specific thing and they don't probably get anything else with it. When they're ordering quantity 60, they're probably buying it for stock and they're ordering other stuff for stock at the same time and you're making 9% when that happens. And so uh, the analysis can uh, go a lot um, uh, deeper than just showing what your profit is at different levels uh, in terms of the absolute dollars that you'd make on that one line. Uh, it takes into account the tendency of those things to be purchased on, on larger orders or smaller orders with or without other products and so on. So this can be really, really um, uh, beneficial and provide some real insights to what's going on in the business. It, it seems like this makes a really strong case for forward buying, right? I mean, that's, that's essentially what you're pointing to is, is you go from one to two to four to eight to, to more that if people forward buy, um, the profitability is going to change significantly. Yeah, and uh, I guess there's two um, overall concepts that uh, that we think about. It's kind of natural for us uh, in the analysis that we're doing. The first thing is that each customer relationship um, has a business purpose, and the business purpose is to convert inventory or revenue into profit. Uh, that's that's what the relationship is for uh, at its base level. You have certain customers that are really good at that. Uh, they'll turn $100 of revenue into $20 of profit. And you have other customers that are maybe make $2 of profit and other customers will lose you $7 every time. And those relationships are very important to understand and to exploit uh, that knowledge so that you can shift more of your business into the higher uh, value relationships. Um, the other thing is that uh, buffered inventory as a concept is very, very valuable throughout the channel. The whole reason that distributors exist is to buffer inventory. Um, it gives the manufacturers a place where inventory can be staged so um, they can sell it to a single place and then multiple customers can come and draw on that inventory. That's what a distributor does. Uh, for distributors, if they uh, start to recognize this as being a benefit, they start thinking about buffered inventory as well. So if you're selling to somebody that's stocking inventory, you're, um, you're a, have a great deal larger uh, chance of being profitable in that relationship. And because of that, distributors have for decades have been inventing buffered inventory. They have uh, uh, VMI, vendor managed inventory. Uh, they have supply closets. Uh, they stock uh, the trucks of the, of the electrical contractors. Um, they're basically finding places where inventory can be buffered. And whenever you buffer inventory, you're eliminating transport costs, order entry and handling costs. Uh, on a larger proportion of your inventory. And so that's what, uh, and the minimum order quantities are really in support of that. And in some cases, encourage buffered inventory to occur. Somebody's buying a, a 32 pack of AA batteries, they're buffering the inventory. 
And so uh, that gets you a direct benefit. What are some of the things that we can we can take away from this um, around minimum order quantities in terms of the benefit and perhaps what we should be doing as distributors? Well, I got to tell you, um, in, in 10 years, we've never um, uh, talked about any topic with our clients that, were, uh, that made them as excited as they are about minimum order quantities. Uh, we're getting uh, wide scale adoption. Everybody virtually that, uh, that we work with is developing programs around this. Um, and so, and, and the reason why is it has a significant benefit um, in terms of impacting your small orders and, and dealing with a small order problem. Um, it uh, is the direct answer to fixing the imbalance uh, between uh, cash flow or our uh, gross profit and operating expenses. Um, it uh, will reduce your overall operating expense because you'll write smaller checks to UPS and FedEx and so on. Um, and uh, you may wind up get, uh, recovering some personnel costs. Uh, if you have attrition or personnel, you may not need to re uh, replace those people and it'll leave more money on the bottom line. Uh, if you're not doing that, it's gonna basically free up capacity uh, in your organization so you can handle more business without having to lease a, another truck or hire a new warehouse person and so on. So it gives you some, uh, some facility for growth. Um, it really uh, reduces debt inventory because of what we talked about before. Um, and uh, it doesn't require a, a change uh, an sustained effort because you can make those changes right in your own system uh, with a little bit of training uh, locally so your people can answer questions from customers. Uh, you can make a change. You could have a different a different P&L in October as we're, uh, as we're talking about this, we're in the beginning of September. Um, in, in the very next month, you could be seeing a benefit that will uh, translate into your bottom line. And then overall, because the chain is short, it's really um, easy to control and really easy to implement. Uh, a little bit of technical uh, work, getting the analysis and uh, and then deciding what your rules are gonna be for how you set your, your minimums, and then you load them into your system and it's all done. Uh, so you're, you're getting benefit a, a week or two from now. Um, and, and there's so few things that you can do in distribution that's gonna give you that kind of benefit, uh, such a significant benefit for such a low investment in time and effort. So um, what, what kind of pushback, if any, is there from the people that now have to share the fact of the minimum order quantity with the customer? Um, that's actually an important question. Um, uh, what, whenever you're making change, uh, you definitely have to make sure that your frontline people are understand what the change is, understand the benefit of the change, and have a narrative that they can use uh, when they're uh, talking to somebody that's, um, that is objecting or at least raising questions surrounding the change. In this case, um, uh, the, the typical narrative is, um, hey, uh, you know, we've changed uh, this kind of thing. Uh, we've changed the minimums here. Uh, uh, things, you know, this kind of thing just isn't available as a single anymore because the value is so low that everybody loses money, including you when you buy a single one. So um, nobody's buying them that way anymore. So, uh, uh, so we've changed the skew. Um, uh, at, at a deeper level, you can say, well, you ordered, uh, you know, I ordered one and you gave me three. 
and say, yeah, they come in three packs and, and uh, we have to, uh, it's either reject the order or it's get you the product. And we thought that we'd, that we were, you know, err on the side of making sure you had the product. If you, if you don't want the three, if it's really a problem to have, you know, $4 and 15 cents worth of product here, uh, just send it back to us, we'll refund it to you. So uh, no problem with that. Um, and then at, at a higher level, when you're working with the buyers and whatnot, you can say, look, you know, we've invested substantially in analytics. We understand where people make and lose money. And it's not sustainable over the long haul for us to be selling you money losing stuff where you're going to, you're guaranteed to lose money on it. Most of our clients don't want that anymore. So uh, we've been doing some work here uh, to eliminate um, all of the transactions where uh, where you're going to lose money on purchasing them because there's just no way you can receive it and handle it uh, for the uh, $2 or for the 15 cents of margin you're going to make on it. And so uh, most people like you don't want to do this anymore. They're not ordering these quantities anymore. So, you know, we're being sensitive to the market and making the shift. So, uh, you know, that kind of uh, narrative is, is being trained so that your people are not caught like a deer in the headlights and you don't wind up with your own people not understanding what's going on and then thinking that you've done something wrong and they're turning that energy back on you. It seems like there, we should be able to create a what-if tool around this where we say if we change minimum order quantities, MOQs on these SKUs from a to B or whatever it is for the specific skew, we should be able to anticipate an increase in profit with perhaps some assumption about elasticity. Um, I agree with that. Um, quite a number of our clients, uh, we export uh, to our clients um, in high volume situations where you've got hundreds of thousands of products. Um, we'll give them back a database that they can do their own analysis on, they can plug into their BI. Um, for uh, smaller scale organizations, we'll create a Excel spreadsheet that has all of these uh, numbers in it, much like you were seeing on the screen a moment ago. And uh, they can uh, basically start playing what if with that. After the fact, we've provided uh, delta analysis for our clients where we give them an entire inventory of uh, say 30 days before, or 60 days before versus 60 days after the change. Hmm. And they can see how they, how that um, balance has shifted and what it's actually done to their bottom line. And the numbers are eye popping. It's yeah. just unbelievable what's, uh, what's happening when people are doing this. It's incredible. Um, any other thoughts, Randy, on this really rich topic? I, first of all, I love, by the way, that it's a quick return. If you look at so many things that we do, um, Ian and I live in the digital world a lot. A lot of that is not a quick return. It's not all necessarily a predictable return. Right. What you're saying is that this is, this is quick, it's predictable, and it's material. Is that it's perfectly suited for the V-shaped recovery. It's perfectly suited for uh, companies that have taken a hit to their cash flow and are looking for something that's going to uh, give them some, some uh, short-term relief uh, on these things. Um, and uh, it's a win-win because anytime you do this, the customer is, getting, is going to be more successful and more profitable uh, because you're going to prevent them from doing things that are hurting them. Good. Um, Ian, I'm going to um, go back into the presentation for just a second here and let you do our, our, our wrap-up. 
Okay, well, thanks. It's been fascinating. You know, I'm the least quantitative of the three of us, so I appreciated the chance to learn from both of you. Thanks very much for that. It was uh, really interesting. Randy, I appreciate your coming onto the show and sharing your expertise. And Randy's contact information is at the bottom left corner of the slide. Uh, R. McLean, McLean at waypointanalytics.com and phone number and extension there. Um, and uh, we are a distribution strategy group. You can see my contact information as well as Jonathan's. On the right, you'll see the latest report that we have released in conjunction with the National Association of Wholesaler Distributors. The NAW is the parent association of all distribution associations. And we're right smack dab in the middle of producing a seven-part series of research reports and webinars for them. And by the way, if you like distribution industry news, uh, then you will find that the NAW has named the successor to long-term CEO Dirk Von Dongen, who has been running the association for what seems like forever. He's done a great job, and now they have a new leader who was just appointed. You can read all about that on NAW.org, as well as find links to our research reports and our webinars. So, gentlemen, thank you once again, and uh, thanks to everyone who attended this episode of Wholesale Change. We'll see you next week. Uh, be safe, be well, and stay out of the fires. And if you're in Colorado, stay out of the snow, even though it's the first 10 days of September. Thanks, everyone. Bye now. Bye-bye.